word, I humbly, um, I humbly do that, Lord. These doctrines of salvation remind us that we are so unworthy, all of us. We're, we have nothing in and of ourselves. And yet, for the foundations of the world, you chose to save us. Long before we were born, long before we even sinned, and you knew you would draw us. And so, Lord, we, we want to worship you more. We want to be pure worshipers. And so we pray that the word of God would continue to do that in our lives today. Lord, we thank you for our young people that so many desired to go to winter retreat this year. We thank you for all the workers, Lord, but most of all, we thank you for the gospel that they heard. And we pray that lives were changed. We pray that young people came to saving faith, that you drew people to yourself. And we do pray you'd give them a safe journey. Father, we think of those who can't be with us, Lord. They're recovering from procedures. They're uh, sick. Uh, they're not where they can be out in public yet, Lord. Um, Lord, we lift them to you. We long to be with them, Lord. And Father, I pray many are even tuning in now and they are able to be comforted by the word of God, by the praises and exaltations of the church, Lord. Lord, we thank you for our missionaries that are scattered around the world so, so precious, Lord. Men and women who have gone and done what we can't, Lord. May we continue to give to the ministry here so we can support them and care for them. Give them favor in their villages and towns and cities, Lord. They carry the greatest message in all the world. So, Lord, we ask that you would bless them and care for them. Now, Lord, as we turn to your word, we ask that it would come off the pages to us. It would remind us of this great truth of salvation laid down before the annuals of time, Lord. And may our hearts be in worship. May we be greater worshipers when we're done. In Jesus' name, amen. As I work my way through this Doctrine of Salvation series, I hope if you missed um, one, you would go and listen to the previous one. When you teach on salvation, they really build upon each other. The first two sermons were on depravity. Really on the doctrine of the inability for man to save ourselves. We are desperately in need of God. We took a good, lengthy look at many passages that helped us understand that we were dead in our sins. And God was going to have to do a miracle to save us. And so it's so important to understand that before we venture even farther into the doctrine of salvation because it, it gets even more uh, bold and beautiful in a lot of ways. This morning I want to begin a two-part series, two-part sermons on, in this doctrine of salvation on the doctrine of sovereign election, or you might understand it as unconditional election. An unconditional election is really the opposite of total depravity. Total depravity is man has lost his capacity to choose God. He's dead in his sins. He's in bondage in his sin. And there's no way for himself to faith himself to God. He's dead. He's not alive, spiritually speaking. Therefore, if anyone is to be saved, it must be a, a, a miraculous work of God that chooses a person to bring them out of total corruption of their nature. And listen, 
If God did not choose the vast numbers of those who have been saved down through Christendom, then no one would be saved. Do you understand that? The doctrine of depravity teaches us if God does not come amongst us, know us, choose us, write our names upon his hands, no one is saved. And so the doctrine of sovereign grace or sovereign election of God is one of the most loving doctrines you'll ever study. Think about a God who rescues people who cannot rescue themselves. Think about a God who comes and collects to himself people who will perish forever if he does not act. It's tremendously loving. And so I love the doctrines of grace. They're full of graciousness. They're full of mercy. They're full of of a loving God who loves us, and it's throughout the entire Bible as we study them. It is the doctrine of love. I was a young man, still in my teens, late teens, wrestling with these truths. And I remember I finally changed the name. I call them the doctrine of love. The doctrine of love. I started to understand how much God loved me when I studied these great texts. And I began to walk with him in a greater way See, in God's love, he chose a number of sinners to be his own. He chose by himself and for himself outside of us. This is the only way he could save us. People will sometimes ask the question, why did God not choose everyone to be saved? Well, that's quite a big answer, but certainly um, in the short order, you would never understand his grace, would you? You would never understand his justice or holiness or so many other aspects. But maybe the more staggering question we should ask instead of that one is why did God choose any of us? Before you get upset when you hear this doctrine, because some people do, do you believe you deserve to be saved? Do you believe that there was something good in you when the Bible says you were dead that there was nothing good, there was none righteous. See, this doctrine is humbling, isn't it? It's a humbling doctrine. It causes people to bend their knees to a glorious God who did something we could not do. This doctrine inspires worship because it provides a far greater and, and an unadulterated form of worship. When you think about the doctrine of salvation, we come completely empty-handed. Completely dependent on God to do something we can't do. See, that brings worship. That, that brings a knowledge and an understanding that God truly rescued me. And I'm free now to worship and set my works aside. See, I think this doctrine is soul-stirring. And unfortunately, you're going to see me get wound up today. Because I can't talk about this and not just feel like I'm going to explode that my God did such a miraculous, infinite work before the foundations of the world and he sent his son to call me by name and make me his. And I trust your heart will be set ablaze today as you understand that God set you apart. As we grow in our understanding that God has chosen us, we come to understand that the purpose was to make us like his son. 
See, the doctrine of unconditional election teaches you that God had a greater purpose. He does not set you and say, oh, now you don't have to go to hell. He, he thinks so much more grander than that. I'm not only saving you, and I only knew you before the foundation of the world. I saved you, and I'm going to make you like the Son. I'm going to conform you and bring you into his image more and more each day. My salvation is so great that the moment you pass away, um, excuse me, the moment of salvation, you, will, you are fully uh, ready to stand in my presence. But I'm going to leave you on this earth, and I'm going to teach you my great salvation so you'll become more and more like my son. The doctrine of unconditional election also liberates you in evangelism. There are so many people that will say that those who believe in the doctrines of, of grace don't evangelize. Well, you haven't been around our church. You haven't been around people who handle the doctrine correctly. See, once you realize that there are those out there just like you that God knows, that God knew before the foundations of the world, and that God is going to draw them, it gets you excited. You begin to realize that I do not have to twist and manipulate something in order to get them saved because God is going to draw him to them to himself. He promised. He promised. See, this motivates world missions, doesn't it? He told us what? I'm going to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So why don't you go? That's why we support missions. That's why we go. It's why we go and trade pastures. That's why we teach all the time. Because we know that God promised he was going to save people. See, the doctrines of grace will liberate you in your evangelism. I remember as a young man just starting in the ministry, getting my mind around this and finding such comfort as I drove from little town to little town and planted Bible studies and, and starting churches and so forth that it was not my job to save. That's a little bit overwhelming, right? See, if, if it's your job to save, then you better get it perfect. You better not use any ums. You certainly better not mess up a few verses here and there. Because if their free will, which we don't believe there is, but if you believe in free will, they're, they're depending on you to get it right so they can make a right choice. That's pretty scary, isn't it? And that has nothing to do with the Bible. See, once you get your mind around that God saves, you are free. You have a humble excitement to share God's word because you know he's going to draw the Bible even lets us look into Revelation chapter 5, and there before the throne are people from every tribe, tongue, right? Every nation. There's that promise that God is going to save and draw people to themselves. There is such a thing as hyper-Calvinism. Those are those groups that have looked at these doctrines and said, oh, well, God's going to save. I'll just, I'll just sit here and watch TV and wait for him to come. Sad. You didn't get the doctrine even close to being right. You missed the whole truth of the text. This is our motivation that God would save me dead in my sins, make me alive, and send me on mission to share that truth with those he is going to save. I love that he doesn't put an E on people's foreheads. That would be awful scary, wouldn't it? I love that only he knows. See, it keeps us in the game, doesn't it? 
keeps us realizing God's going to save. Who is it next? Is it my children? Is it yours? Is it your neighbor? See, we keep confessing these truths because we put our trust in the Lord. William Carey, when he went to uh, take off and be a missionary in India, he came from a church that had grown to that hyper-Calvinistic view. And they said, why do you want to go over there with the savages? (laughs) If God's going to save, God's going to save. Boy, William Carey barked back at them for months before they sent him, saying, that's not the view of God. God has called us to go to the nations to rescue those he and he alone will save, carrying that great message. And we do the same today. So this morning, God desires this doctrine to produce great joy in you. Stir your soul. Next week I'm going to preach Ephesians chapter 1 because I'll still be on this subject and The reason I'm not preaching it today is I've run into many people who get to Ephesians 1 and they go, what does that mean? Predestination and foreknowledge and all of those things. And everybody has a definition and most of them are wrong on it. And and it often can be somewhat scary. Most people that I talk to and I say, have you ever read Ephesians 1? They don't understand what it means. So you know where I start when I teach this doctrine? I start with Jesus' words. A lot of people will reject... uh, Uh, the true understanding of Ephesians 1, but most people will say, I want to hear what Jesus has to say. So this morning, I'm only going to get through four points and those five on your notes. We'll get to that one next week. But this morning, we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about the doctrine of unconditional election. Turn with me to John chapter 1. Our first point is the doctrine of election is rooted and grounded in the sovereign will of God. The doctrine of election is rooted and grounded in the sovereign will of God. In John 1 through 18, we find John's prologue, the inspired 18 verses here that begin this book. I would encourage you to read those 18 verses over and over. In fact, if you could memorize those verses, I know you would have such great comfort in them. If you understand the first 18 verses, you understand so much about God and the sovereignty and who he is and all that he's done for us, it'll overwhelm you. But right in the middle of these verses, we find verses 12 and 13. And I touched on these a few weeks ago, but I want to begin our journey through the book of John using this passage. Verses 12 and 13. The Bible says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Well, the first thing concerning the doctrine of election is that divine choice belongs to God. And that's rooted and grounded all through God's will, all through the word of God. Now, notice in verse 12, there is a human side to this. Verse 12 tells us that there is a reception of the word. Notice, to as many as received him. And those who received him, notice at the end of the verse, are the ones who believed in him. So there's the response to God's sovereign election. We receive it, right? When you, somebody gives you a gift, you receive that. You don't go and steal gifts. That's wrong, unless you're playing that white elephant game or something like that. But um, you, you, you receive something. It's a gift to you. And the gift is given to those who believe, right? And so there's a human side of this, of course, And yet we know this is not done on our own strength. So look what the the divine side sees. 
verse 12 and 13, you see God's work in here. And it really does answer the question, why do we come to faith and believe in the glory of Christ? Well, notice verse 12, it says, we have been given the right. Look at that. We've been given the right. We've been granted the privilege to become the sons of God. To them he gave the right. That's the main verb in that text. You're going to study that text and you want to tear it apart, you better get that verb right. God gave, God gave this right to become the children of God. It is not something you got any other way. God gave it to you. He granted it to you. Verse 13 says, you uh, who were born. Now, the word born here is, refers to new life, the spiritual life. Born means to be born from above, not, not a physical birth here, but a spiritual birth. So God's word makes a great distinction in this passage, saying, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, in verse 13, but of God. So what John is saying here, inspired through the Spirit of God, is that new birth is not the result of blood, first of all, meaning it doesn't come through your human lineage. Pastor's kids don't get a free pass and get in. If your great-granddad was a circuit preacher somewhere, doesn't mean you get in. There is no bloodlines to get in. And he's teaching this because the Pharisees believe this, right? The religious leaders of, the, of the, this time taught these things. And then he says, look at this, nor of the will of flesh. Well, this simply means that you can't get to God, you can't save yourself by your own efforts. There is no earning your way to heaven. Trying to earn your way would show that you're, you've rejected God in a sense. Because dead in your sins, you bring nothing to him. And so John says, inspired by the Spirit of God, it's not by the will of your flesh. And then he puts the dagger here in it. He says, nor by the will of man. Meaning there is no freedom of the will of man. He is not free. He is not free. He cannot will himself to God. He cannot humanly faith his way to God. And then he puts a capstone on verse 13 by saying, but of God. We must be born again, not by the will of man, not by the will of flesh and all those things, but listen to this, by the will of God. It must be God's will that you are saved. No, isn't that just like God? I think so often we find ourselves in a world that uh, of Christianity that gives God credit in lots of areas. Oh, he's creator. He does all these other things. But here they seem to say, well, this is up to man. Man must somehow muster up some kind of goodness within him and choose God. And yet, even at the beginning of John, the book of John, we're told that that can't happen. Holding this incredible, miraculous new birth is what God's word teaches us. That there is an unconditional election. Unconditional. It's something outside of you that God must do. Now, why are some born of God and not others? Those are sometimes difficult answers, aren't they? We don't know, right? We don't know all of the reasons why God does things. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but what he has revealed is belong to us. Well, here's what he's revealed. God saved me. And he taught me from the word of God how he saved me. And he taught me it was outside of me. 
He taught me that I was dead in my sins. I had nothing to do with my salvation. God had to do a miraculous work and resurrect me from the dead, breathe spiritual life into me. See, that's what we do know. That's what we do know. But here's the answer in reality. The answer why some are born of God is that God grants new birth. Through a sovereign choice of our life-giving God, he chooses to breathe life into certain people through his perfect will. And I add that last phrase. You don't want to miss that. God is perfect in all that he does. I'm not sure how many times I use that a week when people talk to me. And whether it's regarding salvation or it's regarding something they're going through that I don't have any answers for. Why God allowed this to happen or something like that. I, will, I often come back and say, you know, I don't understand. But God is perfect in all that he does. Do you believe that? I mean, that's who he is. And so as we come to this, we, we begin to wrestle with this. And I think there are some human things he's given us to help us understand a little bit. This, this example will certainly fall uh, fall far from the truth of God's great sovereignty. But, but just think about your own children. Many of you have had the great privilege of bringing children into this world. And, and, and none, of you, none of your children told you to birth them, did they? I mean, somewhere along the line, we, we, we had three boys, and then, and then we had a little one that the Lord took home. I think a lot of you women have gone through miscarriage. It was hard. And, but somewhere along the line, after that, we decided to have canon. And that's why we named him Canon. Uh, it reminded us of the scriptures. But Canon, as much as he'd like to think, had nothing to do with that. You know my son Canon. He had nothing to do with mom and I's decision to have one more child, thinking maybe it'd be a girl. And so we get a little bit of understanding of that, right? It does fall short of God's sovereign, eternal wisdom. But yet, Canon had no choice, no, no part of the decision of mom and I deciding to have one more child. And that's when we get to the doctrine of grace. We begin to understand true spiritual salvation teaches us that you did nothing to, to be birthed again, born again. It is the work of God. It was the work of God. But why you and not someone else? Well, the answer is God. God made a sovereign choice in eternity past. And I know feelings and emotions come into this, but there are no other answers in this. The Bible says we're dead in our sins. There's none good. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's no way there's good left in us to make it. So it has to come down to just what the Bible says, that God knew us from the foundations of the world, and he drew us to himself. And so the answer is God made a sovereign choice in eternity past, and he saved undeserving people. He gave unmerited grace to you. God chose you for salvation. Next week we'll get into this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. There it tells us that he chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. Now, John's gospel begins with the fact that you were not born of your own will, but you're born of the will of God. And so John's gospel reflects that the rest of the word of God, it reflects just like the rest of the word of God, this is the way God does things. 
God did not seek counsel in his creation. In the beginning, God. He didn't seek counsel to make Adam and Eve. He made Adam and Eve. He didn't seek counsel. These are the decisions he makes. He brought judgment in Noah's day. He gives life and breath. He brought the, part, the, the patriarchs and, and, and started a great nation out of one of the patriarchs. He, he laid down the plan of salvation. He brought the timing of his son in his incarnation. He gave the birth of the church. He has the rapture and tribulation and all the end time events all in his control. He does not need help. And he didn't need help to save us. He chose us from the foundations of the world. We see that over and over. John chapter 2, I don't have time to go there much, but I just want to make a comment here. Here it records Christ's sovereign selection of his disciples. And if you'll study that, he gathers these 12 disciples to him. He knows them by name before they even come to him. He calls them by name. And guess what? Every one of them come, and none of them say, oh, I don't want to come. They all come. And so we even see Christ exercising this sovereign right. No one refuses him because they were chosen to follow him. Look with me at John chapter 3. John chapter 3, these precious verses you know well, verse 16 through 19. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let's start with that, whoever. There's always a group of people that think somehow this whoever is those people that, that, that have the ability to somehow choose God. You know, that's written for our sake. There's nowhere in the Bible can you ever say that God doesn't know who he's going to save. So who's the whoever for? It's for us. It's for, for all those that God will draw to himself, those whoever's. That's who we're looking for. That's who we're looking for, who God is drawing to himself. This is the ones we preach the gospel to. God loved the world, right? He loved his creation. But he's after those that he will open their hearts and minds and will believe on him. It is those he will save from perishing. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now look at verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. And then this phrase, and this helps us understand quite a bit here. He who does not believe has been judged already. So God simply leaves sinners under judgment. That's what he does. Those who believe, God has, says there's no condemnation to those who believe, but he opens our minds. He, he calls us from the, I mean, he, he chooses them from the foundations of the world. Christ comes, dies for us, calls us by name, and brings us out of the world. And those who don't come, he just leaves under judgment. Now, listen to this, where you and I deserve to be. He just leaves them there. And this is an amazing thought. And the reason we know that he leaves them there is because they, because they don't believe in the name, the glory of the only begotten Son. And here's how you know you're saved, is you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't just believe, you're, you're captured with his glory. You're amazed that he would come and save such a wretch as I. If you were just here, well, I'm glad I got some fire insurance, I'm going to go live any way I want. Ooh. You better make sure that you're in the faith. Look at verse 35. Drop down just a little bit. The Father loves the Son 
and has given all things into his hand. Now, think about this. The father loves the son. And now look at this. This is going to be said over and over and over. Jesus is going to say this over and over and over. And has given all things into his hands. Now, this is the Lord Jesus himself speaking here. He's given all things to me. Everything but salvation? No, all things. All things have been laid before the Lord. He has the authority over everything. And this is what the Lord does. John chapter 4 is a beautiful chapter because here he proves this truth by saving one of the most unlikely candidates for salvation, right? He comes to a well that he has a predetermined plan with, an adulterous woman who has lived with many men, and the man she's with now is not her husband. She's the opposite of what the people of that day and of our day would think would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, who would secure salvation. So he writes a whole part of John about this woman and how God miraculously saves her. And so the doctrines of grace are often demonstrated over and over, a divine, sovereign, unconditional election. And you will find these truths in in every chapter. And so this morning, I truly desire for you to see God's unconditional and eternal choice of his elect. Because God the Father sovereignly chose his children before time began, before the foundations of the world, long before any sinner ever came to faith in Christ, God knew you. That's what the Bible teaches. Look at the second thought. Number two, God chose his elect and gave them to his son to be his chosen bride. Flip over with me to John chapter 6. There's there's so much in 5, but let's go to 6. John chapter 6, verse 37. God chose his elect and gave them to his son to be his chosen bride. John 6, 37. Listen carefully. Look at the words in here. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Now, this is Jesus speaking here again. In these verses, we see this divine sovereignty of God and the human response. The Father gives and man comes. Right? That's what's in the text. I want to draw your attention to that very first word, all. Isn't that amazing? All come. All that the Father gives, those all come. Now, the context is Jesus has a great many distractors here, right? They're, they're deterrents of Jesus Christ. They're people who are now hating Christ, who don't want to follow him anymore. They're, they're, he's in amongst a very difficult situation at the end of John 6. In fact, he even tells his own disciples, are you going to leave too? So here he is surrounded by people that have lack of belief in him. And he turns and makes this statement. Because he knows that all that the Father has sovereignly chosen will come to him, period. See what confidence he speaks in. Because he and the Father are one. So he says, all that the Father gives me, grants me, gives to me, will come to me, period. He knows they're going to come and he has such confidence in that. Now, Jesus begins by saying all because it's a certain group here. There's a group. They're called the elect. They're collectively one group. All that the Father gives me will come. So this means that they belong to the Father, and the Father gives them to the Son. The Son will receive them because the Father has given them to him, right? So you already belong to the Father. That's what he's saying. These are mine. I'm going to give them to you. Now, the Father 
has given the Son before they ever come to the Son. And that's what's extremely important in this verse 37. Look at it with me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So the Father already knows what they are. He's not giving uncertainty. You don't have a a semi-sovereign God here. You have a fully sovereign God who knows and gives. Now, the Father chose you. I want you to think about this personally. If you're a believer in this room or you're listening, the Father chose you in eternity past. And you belong to the Father. And the Father in eternity past gave you to the Son, and the Son receives you as a love gift from the Father. This is a love gift from the Father to the Son. We're caught in this inner Trinitarian Beautiful, loving relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, all having their roles in securing our salvation, and we become the bride of the Son. Now, the Father commissions the Son, think about this, to come into the world. This is all in verse 37. He commissions the Son, go into the world, lay your life down for those I have chosen, and secure their salvation by your finished work. And so that's why Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not use. Cast out. Now, this is an extraordinary love story, isn't it? It's extraordinary. Because it begins in eternity past. It begins when we have nothing to do with it. Romans uh, uses Jacob and Esau and and uses situations of of children before they were not even born. It's trying to help us understand that this was God's job to save, not man's. We carry the message. And so it's an extraordinary love story that began in eternity past. These given by the Father to the Son are those that the apostles talk about over and over and over. Now, look at verse 38 with me because I've got to keep moving here. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus here gives all the credit and all the authority to the Father for our election. He says, I'm not here to pick who I want. Yeah, I'm dressed in humanity now. I'm, 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 I have added human nature to myself so I can represent them and die for them. But I am here to gather those that the Father knew before the foundations of the world. And then look at verse 39. This is the will of him. I have that marked clearly in my Bible. Anytime I see the will of God, I want to know, what's the will of God? Well, this is the will of God who sent me, Jesus says. Listen again, here we go again. That all that he has given to me, I lose nothing but raise him up in the last day. So here again this statement, Jesus believes in God's sovereign election. People often come up to me and say, you know, I don't know if I believe that. And I say, well, Jesus does. You got a problem with him? Because that's what verse 39 says, right? This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I will lose nothing. See, Jesus believes in this. He believes in the sovereign, unconditional election of God. And again, this verse refers to all of the elect, all those who were chosen by the Father before time. And Jesus did not come for any other group. And and again, here's why we can find comfort in saying this, because people go, oh, no. Well, who is that group? You don't know. But he does. All we know is God saves sinners. That's why we preach the gospel. We're not looking for an E on somebody's forehead. We're going here. And he does this amazing, doesn't he? Get to the thief on the cross, right? Two guys, Matthew clearly says, are blaspheming the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew. 
by the time you get to Luke's account, one in the last moments of his life goes, wait a minute, we're the guilty ones. He's done nothing wrong. Jesus, will you get me into a paradise? What happened? In the last moment of his life, in this great electoral work of God and in the perfect timing of him, he saves him. And so, brothers and sisters, those who get hardened on this and, and quit evangelizing and quit doing admissions are in sin. We keep preaching till he takes our breath away because of what he has done for us. Oh, don't lose that. Don't lose that fervor to see people saved because only the Son knows. Only the Son knows. And if you went around and say, well, I just don't think they're elect, are you the Son? How dare you say that? We have no idea. And we know God has proven over and over he loves the saved in the 11th hour. Out of all the people who came to Christ in his ministry, which were only a handful, one of them is 11th hour. I think that's pretty awesome. Keep preaching the gospel. Well, the apostles just pick up on this all over the New Testament. And you can't get away from the doctrines of grace. They're all over the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 through 2, Peter says... Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside in, in, as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Asia, Bithynia. And then he says this, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It don't get any clearer than that. Peter did not look at the church and say, well, you know, we've done a pretty good job as apostles. Look at the church. It's really growing. Now they said, you're in the church because God chose you through his foreknowledge. That's astounding. James, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make you certain about his calling and choosing you. Now, he even uses that in a, what we would call more of a progressive sanctification passage where there's this growing in Christ and dying to self and learning to be more like Christ. In the middle of that, he uses the doctrine of election to motivate us. Hey, live for the Lord Jesus. It's one of the things that will help you know you're saved. How many of you have been asked by somebody whether, they think, whether, they, whether you think they're saved? I get that question all the time. I go, uh, yeah, I didn't get that at seminary. I don't know. I said, more importantly, do you know? Because here's what you know. You love the Lord. And though you may have some struggles in your life, you are learning to die to sin. You're learning, and sometimes in the hard ways, and sometimes not as fast as the next guy or gal, but you're growing steadily to be more like Jesus. There's a love, and that, that makes you know that God saved you. You want to live like a worldly lost person? You're going to have all kinds of insecurities of heaven. So the doctrines of grace are not just about how he saves us. They're about a motivation for us to live. James gets on board here too. Who And listen, Peter and James are sitting here with Jesus right here. They're sitting in this John chapter 6. They're hearing him teach us. And so James says, listen, my beloved brethren, did, God choose, did not God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Isn't that interesting? He's talking about those who think they have everything together. Well, you know, my father, you know, I'm, I'm part of this family or whatever. He goes, no, no. James is using exactly what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. The poor in spirit. Those who say, God, I got nothing. I got nothing. I'm just a sinner. I've rejected you. I, I was born a sinner. I need you to save me. That's what James is talking about. Because he knows that's the mark of the elect. We understand we had nothing to offer God. Paul gets into the action, right? He's probably a leading opponent of 
of a doctrine of election, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, listen to this great verse. But we should always give thanks to God for you, beloved brethren of the Lord. Now listen to this. Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. It just doesn't get any clearer than that. God saves. Because, remember the first two sermons, we can't save ourselves. We're dead in our sins. So God must save. God must elect to salvation. It must be his unconditional election that brings us to faith. One more. I was reading just, just through Romans 9 and 10. And oh my goodness, if you want to just wrestle with this truth, go read Romans 9 and 10. But one of the things that really struck me is Paul quotes a passage out of Isaiah 65 in the middle of this argument. And he says this, as Isaiah says, this Romans 10, 20, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Right out of the Old Testament. Teaching the doctrines of grace right out of the Old Testament. Listen to that again. I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. That's the doctrines of grace. God rescues sinners. So the entire Bible speaks with one voice on this matter. It is God alone, for God alone, and not on any basis of his foreknowledge or or his foreseeing what you were going to do or any goodness in us. And the reason I say that is um, I remember as a young man wrestling with these things, and then I've heard a lot of people say, well... Okay, I can't get around all this tons of scriptures that talk about God choosing us for the foundations of the world. But maybe what he did is he, he looked down the lane and he saw that we were going to choose him, so he chose us first. Well, wait a minute. You've still got God dependent upon man. And that never, ever happens. <laughs> God is never dependent upon man. Yes, in his foreknowledge, he knew every one of you that he was going to save. And he knew you by name. And he saves you. But it's not because he sees what we're going to do and reacts. So that would say, no, that can't be true because now God's dependent on me. I didn't have anything to offer him. And I certainly wouldn't choose him in my dead spiritual state. I need him to make me alive. So, in fact, God chooses us not because of us. God chooses us in spite of us, right? God chooses us simply because based on a decision originated in himself. That's cool. It wasn't motivated by anyone else. Well, people say, well, what about faith? John Piper said something a long time ago, and I wrote it down. I have many places throughout different Bibles, and I ran into it this week. And he said this, God's choice does not depend on our faith. Now listen to this. God's choice creates our faith. That's astounding, isn't it? Way to go, John. God's choice does not depend on our faith. God's choice creates our faith. So that's why I say you cannot faith your way. You know, sit with your, your, your legs crossed and, you know, you, you can't do that. You're dead. So it takes God breathing life into us, regenerating us so we can believe and receive this gift of God. Oh, that's great salvation. Third thought. God chooses his own before time, and Christ came to call them by name. God chooses his own before time, and Christ came to call them by name. Look with me over at John 10. I hate to skip 7, 8, and 9. There's so much in there, but for the sake of time, let's run over to 10. I want you to see that God made previous 
choice long before anyone comes to faith in Christ. And those who have been chosen are those who already belong to Christ, and they are those who are called out by Christ. Now, verse 1 starts with this little phrase, right? Truly, truly, I say to you. So there's, a, there's just a great high level of importance here that he wants us to know here in verse 1. So look at verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs over some other way, is a thief and a robber. Now, just a little bit of background here and why this is happening so you understand. In most towns, there would be what we call communal pens. Um, it's, this is true even in the cowboy world as well, in the cattle world. Um, and so the shepherds would come into town. They need to get cleaned up. They need to get some food, whatever. And they would put their sheep in a communal pen. And there they would be in a pen. They would be supposedly safe there while they went and dealt with business. But robbers, they could crawl over the fence and they could grab sheep. They could steal them. They're only a, a, maybe a lamb that's only 10, 15 pounds. They could grab that lamb and they could scoot away. And so he's showing the difference between a true shepherd and a thief here. I was thinking this week of an illustration that I didn't understand when it happened, but now I do. Uh, years ago when I was cowboying, I, I would ride for big outfits, well, you know, with people with thousands of mama cows and babies, and we would drive these cattle uh, north in the, in the spring and then back south in the, in the winter all through eastern uh, Oregon and western, northwestern Nevada and, and northeastern California. Um, and, and most of the time, they were, they were two to three day drives, and you could only take cattle about 20 miles at the most with babies. I mean, it's just it's a pushing them all the way. And then they had these outfits, had pins you know, along the way, and you would get to that pen just about dark, and there we would have feed in there, and we'd push them in there, and we would leave them for the night. But as I thought about this illustration, as I remember back, I remember the owner of the cattle always would turn to his son and say, stay here with the sheep, stay here with the cattle, we'll be back in the morning. And it was just, an, I, now I was thinking, about, wow, how so cool, the father leaves the son with the sheep. And that's what the Lord is teaching here in so many ways. He's, he's teaching, look, the, the true shepherd, he comes through the gate. There's a gatekeeper, and they know who he is, and they hear his voice. And, and I think it's a picture of the dead religion of, of Israel. They are, the, they are the false teachers who are climbing over and saying, do this, do that, do this, and you can inherit the kingdom of God. Be like us, you know, be part of us, and you can inherit the kingdom of God. They're liars, they're robbers, and Jesus is pointing them out. But here's where he begins to really talk about the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 2. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Well, of course, this is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He, he comes through the door legally and lawfully and rightly, right? Because he's right in all he does. He's the Messiah. He's the, the one. He's the greater son of David. He's in the Messiah lineage. He's the one who rightfully enters the sheepfold, unlike the robbers. But look at verse 3. To him the doorkeeper opens. So this door opens to him, not to others. And the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Now, we must understand that the true sheep hear his voice. He calls them by name and he leads them out. Well, how is this possible? Because the Lord God knows the name of his sheep. He chose you from the foundations of the world. Jesus is not saying, I'm stumbling into these people. They are branded. 
one of the things that used to happen in fall. Fall gatherings huge. You're riding on thousands and acres, and you're bringing cattle home from maybe two or three, uh, or maybe even four different outfits, and they all come down to these communal pens. And then you ride in, and you're grabbing your mama cows and your babies, and and you know why? Because they're branded. And you go through and you go, that one's mine. And we're we're working horses and dogs, and we're running them out and getting ours out and separating them from the rest. Well, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's calling his own sheep. And the sheep know his voice. They know the voice of the shepherd. Why? Because he's been known and they've been chosen by God from the foundations of the world. And so the son rides into the communal pens. The son comes into the world and he calls to his previously owned sheep and they know his voice and he brings them out of the midst of the world. That's what he did in your life. He wrote into your life, your name was written on him. The Father had chosen you from the foundations of the world, and he called you, and you believed. <laughs> that's the doctrines of grace. And you go, I've got nothing. He goes, that's why I'm choosing you. Look at verse 4. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. See, they hear the voice. Because before he even called them, they were his. Isn't that sweet? He knows us. And this calling of the sheep is the effectual call of God. It cannot be rejected. And we'll get into that more as we go through this series. But it is the effectual call of God. You can't turn from it. Nathaniel didn't say, well, you know, I don't know if I want to go with you or not. He went. Peter went. Matthew went. They went because the Lord called them and they became disciples. And the same is true in our salvation. The Lord calls you and you come. And you give him all the glory when you start to understand this. Jesus will call them. And only those he has called by name will come to him because he knows them before they even come to him because they were given to him by the Father over and over. All that the Father, what? Gives me will come to me. And I'll lose none of them. Each lamb, think about this, put yourself in this position. Each lamb has been given to Jesus individually, specifically, right? Specifically, by the Father. And the Father individually chooses them. And I want you to get this. The Father didn't choose, it didn't have some uncertain number. He chose precisely. He knows precisely. You're a fool if you turn out cattle on the range and you don't know what you turned out. <laughs> well, I don't know. I lost 15 of them. Well, you're broke. He knows exactly who the lambs are and he's not going to lose one of them. Does that make you want to share the gospel? It makes me want to share the gospel because now I can trust that my God is going to make a mistake. He knows who it is. I have the confidence to say, hey, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and I'll teach you as you come into Christ and grow what the Lord did in your life. See, we find great confidence in that, don't we? Look at verse 26. Drop down a few more verses here. But you do not believe because you are, what? Not of my sheep. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Jesus is saying to them, the reason that you do not believe is because you were not given to me. You're not a gift to me. Now, no, don't go too hard here thinking this is out of line. If you believe, you come when he calls. 
And if you believe, it's because God called you and chose you from the foundations of the world. These, these people that he is speaking of, their hearts are hard. God has turned them over to this reprobate mind. He's turned them over to judgment. He's left them in their judgment, and they don't believe. So Jesus is saying, the reason you don't believe is, is you were not given to me by the Father, and because the Father did not choose you and give you to me, that's why you don't believe. And then look at verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. Notice the complete contrast, right? Verse 26 are these people who don't believe in the Lord Jesus. They, they, they want to come their own way, proving they're not of the flock. But this other group, they hear the voice of Christ. They know him. Oh, what's so fun to watch people get saved? Within moments, it's like they had this long relationship with Jesus Christ. God just floods in that knowledge of who Jesus is. And as simple as it may be that Jesus died for me, it becomes very personal very fast, doesn't it? They don't go, oh, Jesus died for everybody. No, people say, Jesus died for me, and he saved me. See, it gets very personal, very quickly. And look at this. That's exactly what happens here. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I know them, they know me, they follow me, they trust me, and I give them eternal life. And they'll never perish, and no one will ever take them out of my hand, because the Father chose them before the foundations of the world, and you can't lose them. That's the great sovereign work of God. Look at verse 29. My Father, here we go again, who has given them to me. Do you, I mean, you want to fight this doctrine? I mean, it's just over and over and over. The Father who gave them to me, right, who has given them to me, is greater than all. This is a verse I read to some people. Sometimes they'll fight me on these doctrines of elections. And I'll go, well, you're greater than God. Do you want to confront God with his doctrine of salvation? Because I want to read you a verse, verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. The Father gives. I don't know how you're going to get around this. You can fight and you can think, well, I, you know, this isn't fair. You want fair? Come on, let's not go down that track again. Fair, we all go to hell. That's fair. That's deserving. That's right. We're all dead in our sins. We all deserve the wrath of God for all of eternity. That's fair. We're not talking about that. We're actually talking about what's unfair. <laughs> what's unfair is God is saved. That's where mercy and glory is highlighted. Right? Some people say, well, why didn't God save everyone? Well, one, you would never see his mercy and glory and his holiness and his judgment. You would never see all that. He's putting all of his character on display. And you'll see that some days. He separates sheep from goats. And again, that's not our job. That's God's job. So what is implied in this analogy here that Jesus has given is the sovereign, unconditional election of the Father in eternity past. He chose those sheep to be the chosen bride of his son. And he gives them to the son. The son calls them. He separates them out from the world. And they come and they're drawn by the spirit of God because it is irresistible. And they follow. What a wonderful thing it is to be known by God from the foundations of the world, called by the shepherd, and brought by the spirit of God, sealed by the spirit of God. Amazing. Forethought. And we're only going to get partly through this one. The elect are distinguished from the world, but the lost can't hide from God. This is a very important point here. The, the elect are distinguished from the world, but the lost cannot hide 
from God. I don't have time to run you over there, but Matthew 13 is one of my favorite parables. Is there, and if you study the parables, they're very sovereign. There's a lot of sovereignty in the parables. Matthew chapter 13, 24 through 30, there is a parable that Jesus begins to say, and he talks about it being like the kingdom of God. And he says there's a field there, and an owner has this field. And while he was sleeping, him and his men were sleeping, enemy came in and sowed tares into his field, uh, weeds, to destroy, try to destroy his crop. And when the rains came and so forth, the wheat sprouted, but also came up these tares, this wheat. And then the servants of the landowner came to him and said, Sir, do you, do you see what happened? They've, they've planted these bad seeds within these good seeds. What do you want us to do? Should we go and tear out the tares, pull them out? <laughs> and the master says, No, no. Oh, let them come together. And at harvest time, at harvest time, I will take the tares and I will bundle them up and I will throw them into the fire and they will be consumed. And then he says this, I will take the wheat and gather it into my barn. I think this is an, a fitting example. And what I'm going to show you next in the book of John in just a moment is what, how this gets illustrated. There are plenty of people who grow up within the church. I've used the word uh, reformed confessionalist. These are people who say, oh, yeah, that's good. I like that. I don't do anything. I grain Jesus. Great. I'll go live the way I want. They're not saved. There's plenty of people. I've had this happen. I had a 51-year-old gal get saved. She grew up under the ministry of Dr. MacArthur's dad's ministry. 51 years old. She's sitting in church. I'm preaching on a series probably in my 20s on uh, James, a dead faith versus a living faith, a live faith, a saving faith. And she gets saved in the middle of service. And I've seen that done so many times because there's people who grow up knowing some kind of head knowledge, but they don't know the Lord. But praise God, he knows some of them and he draws them out and he puts them into his barn. You get into chapter 11 in John and you run into some phenomenal verses. Verse 25, it tells us that he's the resurrection and the life, right? So you say, well, this is, how is it sovereign? Well, he resurrects dead people. Do you, you know you're an absolute phenomenal miracle of God? He raised you from the dead and made you alive in Christ, Ephesians tells us. And then as you trail over to verse 43 in chapter 11, he says, when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice. He goes, do you want me to show you that I have power over life and death? you want to show, show you that I can even, my children, my, the ones Father has known before the foundation of the world, that I can even call them out of tombs? And he goes, Lazarus, come out. Exhibit A. <laughs> I raise the dead. That's what the Lord gives. And he's showing us his, he is so confident in the Father. Would you say that this dead guy is buried well? You know, we wouldn't have any idea. Go down and go down to the cemetery and start walking around and try to figure out who's alive and who, who's with Christ and who isn't. See, God knows. He knows. He knows all this. You get into chapter 12. Look at chapter 12 just at the, towards the end real quick. Verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in them, in him. He had done so much. I mean, think about our Lord. The Bible says in places where he came in and he healed all that came to him. Had complete, full control over the demonic world. Raised people from the dead, little girls, Lazarus. Fed people, created food. Created it and gave it to them. And the Bible says here, though he performed many signs before them, 
they were not believing. Well, why? Why? Why does that happen? Well, verse 38, this is to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which was spoken, the Lord who has believed our report. The non-elect don't believe. Why in the world do they not believe? Why wouldn't you walk away and go, I don't know who that guy is, but I'm going with him. I mean, why wouldn't you? That's because your will is dead, right? And then he goes on to say, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Because if they don't believe this, who has God revealed himself to? And then he goes on to explain a little further what the problem is. For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their hearts and be converted. And I heal them because the Father already chose the elect. And Jesus came to do only what the Father's will was. Not something other than that. But quickly, I'm running out of time. Look at John 13. We'll end with this. John 13, verse 18 through 19. Um, and then we'll, we'll catch this back and, and we're going to look at one more passage in John 17 that we have to look at, but it'll fit great with Ephesians chapter 1 next week. But look at John chapter 13, verse 18. Look at this verse. I do not speak of all of you. Uh-oh. There's, there's some distinguishing going on here, right? I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. That's Jesus speaking now, Right? So I want, to, I want you to see this distinguishing choice. Jesus taught that God had made a sovereign choice of certain individuals to whom he would call the salvation, but not all individuals. And when we get to this verse, um, Jesus is addressing the 12 disciples. They're in the upper room. He's just washed their feet. And guess who's sitting in their midst? Judas. Judas. And he says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. Now, isn't that fascinating? You say, well, didn't the Father do the choosing? Well, you think you're going to separate the Father and Son? They know. The Son was not ignorant. He was there to call them out. But he says, look, there's a differencing, there's a, there's a distinguishing choice here. I did not speak of all of you. Notice the all. It refers to the 12, these disciples. Jesus is saying, I'm about to say here, does not refer to all 12 of you. And then Jesus speaks to the ones he was given by the Father. And so within the 12, he knows exactly who the Father had given him. Judas was not hiding from him. Judas was hiding from the rest of them. You remember what happens. Jesus says, someone's going to betray me tonight. And they all look around like, what? And they go, is it I? Remember they say that? They don't go, oh, it's got to be Judas. (laughs) It isn't until later they realize it was a thief and a liar and all that other stuff. He was disguised right in among the Christians, the followers of Christ. He was right in there. Uh, But you can't fool a sovereign God. He knows whose are his. And you may not like this doctrine, but you're going to have to wrestle with this. God knows who are his. The, the, the apostles pick up this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Paul says this, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of the elect, excuse me, for the sake of those who are chosen. I, I transliterated the word. Therefore chosen. Look, Paul says, look, I'm going to go through jail. I'm going to get my head chopped off by Nero. I'm going to watch the church suffer, but I'm going to go through this because I'm going to do it because God chose people. And Paul didn't run around. You show me a place where Paul doesn't go, well, I'm not going to preach that group because I don't think they're elect. 
He's preaching to, to anybody who will hear it and then he knows God will save. He goes down just a little farther because there's, there's, um, there's Judas's in amongst the church. And he's talking about a few men who, who are secretly hiding in the church and he exposes them. And then he finally says this, verse 19, he says, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. Now listen to this, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. I am so confident in this doctrine uh, humbly confident because I can preach knowing that God saves. I don't have to save you. <laughs> That's a terrible pressure on a preacher or a neighbor or anything else. But you can be confident to say, here's what the Word of God says. You can preach or teach or show or read the Word of God to somebody and God won't miss any of His elect. And He's got them everywhere. And heaven's going to be full of them. And the question is, are you going to participate in this? Are you going to have fruit and bear fruit in your life and be part of that? Verse 18, just real quickly, he uses this word chosen. It's eklekomai here. Ek is it's a little prefix that we put on Greek words that helps understand the word. So it's ek. Legomai. Ek means out of, right? And so we get the word like ecclesia. ecclesia. Um, the, the ones pulled out. This church, ecclesiology, the church. So he pulls out the church. So we get that idea. And then this word legomai means to choose out of many possibilities. It's used all through the Bible, using the Septuagint of the Old Testament, the Greek, um, where David chooses five stones. You know, I think looking at that guy, I would have chose a lot more. But he chose five, you know, it's just. Um, it's, it's used of, of Joshua when he says, when he's preaching his last sermon, he says, look, for me and my house, we choose, we're going to choose to follow the Lord. And, and so it's used throughout that, but it's used throughout the scriptures that God divinely chooses among the world, all those people in the world to save some and leave others under judgment. And this is what he does and he does it perfectly. Let me just end with a couple more verses just to What's your appetite for next week? Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. I think people who believe in the doctrines of grace should be the most compassionate people on the earth. And this is how you know you got the doctrines of grace right, because you weep over the lost. You're burdened by people who don't know Christ. See, the chosen understand we didn't... We didn't deserve what we get. And so when you see a lost family member, a lost neighbor, someone, a co-worker, you begin to long and plead with God to save because God has now given you compassion because you received what you did not deserve. Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and of the apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God in the knowledge of truth. Peter 1.1, again, it comes back to those chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. This is what God has done. This is the doctrines of grace. It all starts with the doctrine of depravity. And once you understand that you have nothing in and of yourself deserving of salvation, this doctrine gets richer and richer and richer. And it invades every aspect of your life. Praise the Lord. Father, we thank you for a few minutes here out of a lot of minutes we'll spend in this world this week, um, but a few minutes to just remind ourselves how great a God you are, how you saved undeserving sinners, how you knew us before the foundations of the world and your son came and called his sheep out of the pen, out of the world, 
And we heard him, Lord. We heard him by the grace of God. We would not have heard him if it wasn't for you. But we heard him and we came, Lord. And we believed and we received the gift of salvation. Oh, Lord, what a precious gift. God, help us. Help us, Lord, not to hold this in. This is too bright of a light to set underneath a bushel. May we put it on a hill. Let all see. And Lord, we will trust you, Lord. Help us not to cross the line that only you know, Lord. That's your business who you have chosen from the foundations of the world. Our business is to lovingly, humbly give the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Embolden us, Lord. Embolden us to preach your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me for a closing benediction? Listen as we close our service out. Our sovereign Father, thank you for shining your light and grace and mercy on us. We praise you that you did what we could not do. You saved us. We praise you and bless you for your sovereignty over all things and all people. May we worship you with pure hearts for our salvation. May our salvation motivate us to passionately share our Savior with others, knowing that you and you alone have the power to save. Amen? Amen. Preach the God.